Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. Welcome to a special episode of the European VC, recorded live at TEDx Athens, where Demetrius, founder at Velocity Partners, invited us to host a talk with Joe Shorge founding and managing partner of Isomer Capital. We're discussing how Joe thinks about being an optimist in the current market, what advice he gives to managers, and we lift the curtain for a sneak peek into Isomer's extremely selective cornerstone program for emerging managers. Before we get on with the episode, we want to direct your attention to our upcoming fireside on raising VC funds in certain times. Just hit up our LinkedIn page and register for the LinkedIn Live on June the 7th, 3 p.m. Central European time. Joe, thank you for joining us here after having been on the uh, main TEDx stage. And Joe, I think my first question to you is, why did you come here to talk about the great unknown? Well, building technology companies and investing in startups is all about the future, which is by definition unknown. So when I got the invitation to come to Athens, wow, I was super happy, <laughs> honored and excited. And I spent my time trying to figure out what the future could be and what products and services that we might all like to use could be and investing in those today, which is difficult. And sometimes you get it right and sometimes you don't. To the part of our audience that might not know this, you are invested in more than 60 funds and 1,500 startups. So it is some exposure that you have. And I think that everyone probably has the thought, how do you end up in that situation? Where do you, what's the path like? <laughs> it's a long, windy road. <laughs> in my case, I get that question a lot from people getting out of university. Like, how do I get into venture capital? And my, the beginning of my answer is always, well, don't do what I did. <laughs> um, I studied computer engineering and I started my career as an IT guy for 10 years, building software, buying software, managing teams that develop software and things like that, first in the US and then in Europe. And it kind of opened my eyes to the power of technology or what you could do with technology if you were ambitious and had ideas and so on. And I, in the early 2000s, I sort of worked on some startups and I jumped the fence really from operator to investor. And I started to learn at that time what venture capital was. It was a new, new idea to me. And not a lot of venture capital was going on in Europe at that time, but some. And then I invested globally in private markets as an investment consultant, partly in venture capital, but largely also in buyout funds and real estate funds and infrastructure funds, private markets globally which is a, you know important segment of the economy and growing a lot. What gets me in this chair today to talk to all of you, which is you know a great pleasure, in all honesty, I've done different things in my life and this is the most, what I do today is the most fun thing I could do with my time. And that's a lovely moment to arrive at. In 2013 and 14, I started hearing the same story from lots of entrepreneurs. We created something, a new company, it's six months old, the product is in the market and it's already got five customers and some of them are paying. 
I thought, really, six months old? They're paying customer. That never happened before in like the prior 40 years of venture capital. Something's going on here. That's really interesting that you can make something in your garage, at your kitchen table, at your, and that's where we are today. Anybody who has a big idea, you have the tech tools available to you, free, on the web. And you have the means of distribution. So if you build something, you can blow it into an app store. It's available globally in 30 minutes. That, the power of that is hard to overestimate. And that's quite a contrast to if we look at your early days as a software developer in a bank. You know, totally you've got different. some uh, pretty interesting stories about building in that world. Totally different. Yeah, I, I told the story earlier today when I... In the mid-90s, I wrote my first website. I think it was 94 or something. And at that time, the web was a weird new thing that nobody understood or was using, really. A bit like crypto. I feel similar to crypto Web3 stuff today. And I went to the bosses of the bank and I said, hey, I think we ought to have a website. And they said, no. Why would we do that? I said, well, I don't know exactly, but I think that it's kind of going to be important and a front face of the bank and a way to communicate to people far away. You couldn't see online banking coming. You couldn't see e-commerce. At that moment, you didn't know those things were there. But I had a feeling that that would be an important technology, which is what I feel today about blockchain and crypto. I don't know what the killer app will be. There's a few that you can see, but that technology, I think, will be really big. So, Joe, this is a special episode of the UVC podcast, which you have participated in, because we're here at TEDx Athens recording this episode with an audience. So that's super cool. And as Andreas said, you just gave a talk in the main stage uh, a couple of hours ago, where you started by saying, I'm an incurable optimist, and I think the history is with me on that one. I want to ask you to kind of take the time to explain to us, how does that affect your work as an investor? but also how that defines the type of investor that you are. Because there's very different asset classes that you could be investing in. And I think, you know, you frame it in that very kind of nice and understandable way with a nice little slide with a, a smiley, but there's a lot of information behind that. And I'd love to ask you to expand on that. Well, what does it mean to be an optimist? I said it in the talk. I think people are basically good. <laughs> I think things are basically good, the situation we all live in. And I think over time they get better. And the chart I threw up there is life expectancy. So your life expectancy is longer than your grandparents and theirs was longer than their grandparents. And that didn't happen by accident. That happened with decades of hard work and human endeavor and ingenuity to solve health issues, increase nutrition, blah, 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 right? So there's a very visible curve there where we will live longer than people did 100 years ago. And of course, here we are sitting in Athens in this amazing building that's super high tech. All that's new, right? Even the technology to make these lights is not that old. So we're kind of living in this amazing moment. And you, you maybe don't think about it because you just get used to having that phone in your pocket. But how remarkable that phone in your pocket is. It has more computing power than the original rockets that went to the moon. Yeah. And we're all just walking around with it, you know. Unbelievable, if you really think about it. So the optimist part is to say, if you follow that curve that like some amazing things are coming fairly soon that you can't see yet, and maybe as an investor, if I use all the, the knowledge and experience and network I've got, that I could participate in some of those big ideas. Or I could help people who have those ideas and have those skills to create that stuff. So I, I'm super curious, Joe, because you're an optimist. 
You're, and we even say in, incurable optimist. <laughs> and right now we're in a market that's just tumbling down around us. It feels like when you, when you listen to the news. How does an optimist look at that? It might be hard to be an optimist if you look at your American tech stock portfolio right now. Yeah, well, I think in longer time periods. So, you know, public markets value companies based on lots of metrics, which have nothing to do with the company. So is a company worth 90% less today than it was yesterday? Well, not really. Um, you know, that's what people are willing to pay. What is real value, right? It's a difficult moment in markets. And that big decline in public markets is causing a lot of caution and prudence now in private markets, which personally I love. I'm really happy about that. There's a risk that entrepreneurs and startups view venture capital as an automatic bank machine at the end of the road. And I'll build and I'll spend, and then when I'm run out of money, I'll just go down there and take out some more. And that's not how the game is supposed to be played. But we kind of been doing that for a couple of years. You know, a lot of money going into companies that are overpriced relative to what they've actually achieved to date, which creates a future problem for the entrepreneur, whether they know it or not. What about more on the GP side? So the investors, you know, because you just did the reflection on, on the founder side and then on the GP side. There was a huge boom. Everyone was raising, you know, funds popping everywhere. Yeah. What do you think this will actually bring to that part of our industry? Well, in you know, the area I like to focus on, I haven't seen a big slowdown yet. I suppose it will come, but the, you know, the very early stage seed kind of funds. What's good in Europe, I think, is the amount of dry powder that is uninvested capital that is within funds, committed to funds, but not yet invested, is at a record high. And why is that a good thing? Because it means those firms can support companies through the coming years when they need additional capital. And startup companies need money about every year, 18 months, right? So we're going through a big exercise now to ask all those companies, how's your burn rate and how's your cash level? And yeah. are you going to ask us for money in six months or 12 months or 18 months? We'd like it to be more like 24 months if we really <laughs> could get, because, you know, we're entering a period of higher risk and difficulty and none of us know quite what yeah. that's going to mean. So prudence is important right now. I'd love to dive a bit deeper there and ask you, Joe, What do you say? So you've got 60 GPs or even more, right? Because every venture firm has multiple GPs. So how do you advise right now? What are the problems that you hear them coming with? And what do you advise? Oh, well, it's a different advice for different people. I, I'm an interesting trend right now. I'm a little nervous about, and we've seen it in some newspapers recently, and I hear a lot of people talking about it. If you're 35 years old or less, your career has been only in a rising market. Stock markets have gone up, more money's flowed into private markets. You've never lived in a difficult period economically. So there's a big part of the venture capital community that's that. They've never had a tough time. And that's, you know, dangerous because you don't know how to manage through difficult things until you've, you've dealt with it. So I think, you know, some of the advice now is to try to study the cycle of the past and understand it. And what does prudence mean? I kept saying prudence, prudence, but reducing discretionary spend in startups considering the burn rate relative to the cash and extending that runway as long as you can. Or, you know, for more mature companies, what does it need for you to get to profitability? And is there a different route, maybe a slower growth path to get there? Because growth at all costs tends to be a feature of markets where money's cheap. So maybe growth at all costs is not a great strategy now, but a slower growth 
that, you know, maybe you can sell your way out, right? So, hey, revenue is really good. I'm kind of old school. I really like revenue. <laughs> you know, there's a product and a customer that pays for it and that comes in and we pay our people with that. Sounds old fashioned in the venture capital world. But I think, um, you know, the advice for the younger crowd of which a large part of European VC is, is that, would be to try to get around your table your investment committee, your team, your advisory group, whatever, some people who've lived through those prior cycles. And if you've ever been a CEO of a startup in one of those cycles and you had to fire half the team, that's tough. Which half do you fire and which functions do you cut? And discretionary spend, is, is there, are there smarter ways to reduce that than the brute force? And so I always look for that in funds we invest in and companies we invest in. Are there some people around the table who've been through tough times. And tough times could be an economic cycle. Tough time could also be a failure of a startup. I worked on failed projects, a bunch, <laughs> more than I'd like to tell you. And what it did for me, and I think what it does for a lot of people is when you have a success, you think it's all you and everything's great and you go have a party. When you have a failure, like a you know, big failure and you can't get a job after that and so on, you lay in your bed every night thinking, what could I have done better or faster or what did I get wrong or what I, I spent years doing that and then it helped me later when I started a new company and I built into it all those things I thought about for those years I thought, well if I ever did it again I would make sure I had more cushion here and I would structure that way and I would do something like this and that logic really helped me so getting an old guy, I guess that's my advice. Get an old guy around the table. Get an old, get an old dude. <laughs> I'm not saying that just because I'm an old guy, but uh, sometimes they're useful. That's what we did. <laughs> For the sake of clarity, I think it would be really cool if you could explain in your own words. We like asking you this because you have a nice way of simplifying stuff. What is this concept of tech correction? And what does it mean for startups and the venture industry alike? Well, in venture capital... Companies are valued at the last price of the equity someone paid. So there's not a true value, right? Because companies are not profitable and you can't do the normal valuation methodologies that you do in a mature company. Mature company, you say the earnings are 100 a year and these companies trade it 15 times and so there's my economic value of the company. Whereas in startups, you basically say there is no economic value really because the company will be bankrupt in 12 months <laughs> on its current rate. So what we'll agree as an industry is we'll agree that whatever the last price paid, we'll call the company worth that. So there's a, a round in the company, you know, 10% of the shares are bought for 50 million and therefore the company's worth 500 million, right? How does that number arise? Well, it's a negotiation between the company and the people who fund it, the VCs or others, as to how much of the equity of that company they're going to receive for the amount that they're putting in. So it's an implied valuation. It's not a, I mean, what is a true valuation, but it's, it's implied by the investment. So when we talk about unicorns, it doesn't mean that someone's bought the company for a billion. It means that somebody's invested money paying an amount for one share that all shares together equal a billion. Right. So this is all about attitude and supply-demand balance of capital. If I think your company is worth a lot, I'll give you 50 million and only take 10% equity, you know. But if I think it's not that good, maybe you still need 50 million, but I'll take 20% equity. So your company's worth half in that scenario, right? So in a correction now where sentiment's changing and people are worried about the future and the large capital flows that fund venture capital are getting more conservative, 
And they've been through a period where they've been asked to put a lot of money in. Been, funds are coming back to market very quickly. So they're kind of probably happy to slow down a little bit. 2021 was just money out the door. So they're probably happy to slow down, which means that VCs probably have to rethink. So the attitude kind of flows downward, right? And the attitude will appear in two big ways. You know, if I follow that example, one, do you really need 50 million, David, for this next 12 months? You know, do you really need that market spend? Do you really need to hire all those people? Maybe you can get by with 35, you know? And then the other one is, maybe I should get more equity for my 35, you know? I actually think that that is also something that we're going to see with this tech correction because we were starting to see founders being able to say, governance, yeah. <laughs> I run this show. And I'd love to hear your perspective on that because I'm sure that you've also seen VCs giving up terms with founders where you'd much rather that your VC had said, nah, then I'm not in that round or saying I need that and it's for your sake, so on and so forth. How, are, how have you been yeah, thinking and- about that? And the same in funds. So really hot funds can pull out governance and increase fees and stuff like that. And as an investor, you take it or leave it. You know, so this is FOMO investing, right? If you want to be part of this, then you're going to accept these terms. And when there's a balance of power in favor of the investor, you tend to get more strict terms and more strict governance. And when the balance of power is more in favor of the investee, then, and, and we saw that over the last cycle where VC funds were, Say, you know what, maybe we won't have a key man, or we won't have this, or we will have that, or we'll put the fee up or whatever. So that's probably going to slow down a little bit. And I don't know, it's always a balance, right? Too many rules can stop innovation and restrict the freedom of ideas to find their logical place. But then not enough rules lead to bad behaviors, which also damage funds and companies. It sounds like a Zen argument, right? It's all about, it's all about um, balance. Uh, exactly. nah, and we'll make it even more Zen because I was about to use this as a segue to say that, Joe, I think of you a bit of the OG of VC in Europe. And now I want to dive a bit into trends and what you're seeing coming and what is it that's growing today. And I'd rather than us talking about something that's big and superficial, I'd love to dive into a case that I know is going on right now, which is... You guys are building up a fund with a super new team and cornerstoning that, as you call it. I'd love to hear more about how you do that and why you do that. And, you know, and the OG point here is, of course, that it's obvious to most that there's not many around with your competency in building firms. I'd love to hear this. Yeah, it's a weird thing to do. It is the most exciting, most thrilling, fun thing you can do. And it's based on the idea that from the time of starting Isomer Capital, We said, you know, you go around the market and you try to meet all the smart people doing tech stuff and you invest with some of them and you invest based on a range of metrics and trying to diversify and trying to have exposure to certain countries and certain technologies and certain business models. And, you know, it's a big jigsaw puzzle that you put together in a portfolio model. But let's be honest, from time to time, we're going to meet people who don't yet have a firm. From our opinion, would be a really strong technological team and they want to build something. So, and it happens with, you know, you meet entrepreneurs who want to build something and you, you meet them before they built it. So we shouldn't let the time that we met them dictate whether we invest or not, right? If they don't have a fund, well, let's help them build it. We know how to build funds. We got lawyers everywhere. We got, you know, fund admin, like all the components you need if we find someone who really has a towering technical skill. And so the one you're referring to is a crypto Web3 focused team. And they're similar to lots of teams we meet. They do have a towering strength in that area. 
which I do not, which is why I need a partner like that. I often say it, and I think it's true. I know enough to be dangerous, but not <laughs> enough to be good. <laughs> and it's important to know your limits, right? So I want to partner with this team. And basically the question is, what do you need? Well, we need money. We need help. How do we structure it? Where do we put it? How does governance work well on something like this? How do we find other investors? And so what we're contributing as a firm is all of that. So the cornerstone activity, right? Putting the first money is a high risk thing to do. And we can do that because it fits within our structure and it's what our investors want us to do. And it has worked very well when we do it in the past. But equally important to the money is actually all the other things that aren't always clear at the beginning. But as you're building a new investment firm, you hit all these hurdles. Like, oh, I didn't know. The lawyers told me we have to do that. I didn't know that. Yeah, don't worry. Here's a template doc, you know. And by the way, the best way to do it is over here, not what the lawyers told you and, and so on and so forth. And if you want that kind of investor, you're going to need this sort of term. And so helping people navigate that. And the prize for me at the end is, you know, you go through a lot of not enjoyable plumbing, but at the end, you get to work with some really brilliant people who have eyes and ears and brains that extend our reach. And that's um, partnership for the next 10, 20 years. We've done that a few times now, and I'm proud to say every one of them has worked amazingly well because they become really collaborations where you build something together. And by combining knowledge, we end up with a better product in the end. So yeah, I'm excited about that one. These take 18 months to two years normally. They're, they're long, but a lot of people claim to back emerging managers. There's nothing more emerging than we met some people who would like to have a firm. It doesn't come more early stage than that. I want to tease something out of you because you said, we've done it in the past and it's worked quite well. Share with us, but what does that mean, right? Because it's not the first time you do it. That means that there's accumulated experience there, but there's also, you know, you already have kind of a view on, on the return on that effort, on that investment. And I'd love to hear a bit about that. Well, I'm not going to throw numbers around, but... <laughs> I guess an interesting statistic. So we're a GP and an LP, and we charge our investors management fees to operate that money, like any fund does, right? But by building things and taking a profit share when they work, we defer our own fee. So I'm sort of saying, I'm you know, going to charge you a fee, but actually I'll go out and do stuff which earns different fees. And so far in our first fund, we've earned all the fees that we charge, so we've paid for ourselves, and now we've paid now 40% more. So that's quite a nice yeah. you know, return on that, and it will grow a lot more. So I have a lot of you know, personal satisfaction of putting people in business who wouldn't be in business. You know, when they're having success, it's our success. It's economically our success, but it's also intellectually our success. We can do more together. There's probably other things I'm missing, but I guess the other aspect of success, sorry, is why do we do this? We do this to get into things that we couldn't do ourselves. So crypto and Web3 is something we cannot do, and we certainly not with the knowledge of, of these people. And we can do that in a sector, we can do that in a country, you know. And I think that it's also very clear that especially crypto and Web3, the GPs that probably have the highest potential there, they will lack a lot on the structure side, because it's a mess trying to figure out how, what regulations are like in that space. Well, nobody knows what the regulations yeah, exactly. are because they haven't been made up yet. Yeah. No, but that means that you need to have someone <laughs> like you who are comfortable saying that this is the best we can do, because you can keep on asking lawyers and regulators, and the only thing you'll end up with is the same point of view that you need to make a decision and then 
hopefully you made the right one. There is some risk there. Yeah. The regulators haven't set most regulation yet that they will, and the lawyers don't know what they will do. So you get a lot of it. There's an additional intellectual challenge, which is does the traditional fund structure fit those assets? Mm -hmm. The quick answer is no. <laughs> um, so you have equity projects which fit in an equity fund, but then things tokenize. And what do you hold the tokens in? Does your traditional transparent limited partnership work? Or do you need to put some sort of wrapper around them? And what about those functions of those assets that generate taxable things like mm -hmm. yield? Yeah. So if I'm doing token staking and I'm getting paid for that, I think at some point that looks like income which gets taxed. And in private market funds, we hate income. We don't yeah. want income. We want capital gain. We want it later. And we want it big. We don't want income. To, but there you go, right? And so there's a new feature of this new type of asset. When you create a new fund, you have to sort of think forward. What could happen? Well, we could have this. We could have that. And you're right. You have to take action at some point. Because if you, I, I love, I'm kind of still the engineer in my heart. And I love sitting at my desk with a spreadsheet and a model and try to figure that out. But if you do that, you'll never actually make the investment. So I remember meeting the GP and I said, how are things? Are you liking it? And then he said, well, you know, I feel like I'm in meetings with lawyers all day, so <laughs> I don't really know. <laughs> and having a partner that can then help you in that is sincerely needed in this space, I believe. What emerging managers don't have quite often is a friend who's also a sparring partner and understands their business. So many of the LPs, at least in the European market, are not super experienced in venture capital or don't have time or interest or whatever. So they're putting money in because I think it's an interesting investment, but they're not helping. You can't call them when you have a problem. And, and that's the role we're playing quite often. You know, you may never have a problem. And if you don't, that's great. But if you do have a problem, you know, we have a whole team of people who are really smart and saw a lot of stuff and call us up and we'll try to help. We can't fix everything, but we'll try hard. That's our promise. I want to change topic completely now and uh, go back to your TED Talk where you said that you used to watch uh, Star Trek with your dad. You know, you kind of explained a bit, you know, how interesting that is from your optimistic point of view. You know, who would know that I could just have something that I could communicate with someone on the other side of the world. But I want to ask you, what other sci-fi work inspires you as an investor? Well, science fiction is all about ideas, so it's great. And, you know, most of the ideas we're working on today, somebody thought them up 30, 40, 50 years ago. So all the metaverse stuff is all in old books. You know, the idea that you could somehow plug in to a network of sorts. Yeah. I'm trying to remember Snow Crash maybe is one of those. But I use the example of Star Trek today because when Star Trek came out and everybody had a personal communicator, that really was unthinkable that that would be possible and now we have it. So I think if you read a lot of science fiction, you can wonder what things will be possible. Some things like biological implants, you know, augmenting the human body with chips and hydraulics and God knows what, you know, that's kind of an interesting area that's really weird. But you know, what's that quote? Everything is impossible until it's not. So yeah, read some science fiction. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful way to round this off. Joe, we always end with a quick fire round, as you know, and you've answered this before, but I think we should just end it up with, you've been in Athens for the last couple of days. You've been having fun. We've been uh, busy, not sleeping much. For everyone part of the startup ecosystem here, you know, what would be like your last words slash advice slash whatever you want to call it as a goodbye uh, 
from this experience you had TEDx? Oh, keep going. Keep going, Greek people in Athens. I heard a lot of really encouraging things. I was in a room full of investors yesterday. They're smart. They're enthusiastic. They have money. They have already experience backing early stage technology companies. And I think the trend is very strong. So I visit a lot of ecosystems in various stages of development. And everyone here is very quick to point out it's immature. But I saw, I heard, and I saw all the seeds of what can be great. And this willingness to take a risk and to embrace failure and to iterate quickly, I, I saw that. And those, to me, are the core ingredients yeah. of what you can do. But you have to keep to it because you can't, boom and bust is bad. So yeah. doing something and stopping and doing something bad, you've got to just keep going time after time after time. And I think that's what we've heard a lot of in the, in the last few days, which is great. So we're coming back to Athens in the next year and two and three, and we will see some big tech companies, I'm sure. Does anyone have a question? Do we have two minutes for a question or two? <laughs> Ask for one question. Okay, one question. You, have, you get one. No question. pressure. <laughs> yes. What would I not invest in? No, it's a super important question because good strategy means what you will and what you will not, right? What we try to invest in is things you can build with relatively small amounts of money that can be big. And therefore, things which take a lot of money to build are not appropriate for venture capital. So high capex projects. Hardware is difficult, although you can do it now with outsourcing and so on. Heavy machinery, manufacturing. That stuff is all out of bounds. I personally don't invest in life sciences, anything in a wet lab. So where digital is there, so I do everything digital. If it's digital, I'm interested. And so, you know, using MRI data to diagnose, great. But biological wet lab stuff, not my skill set. I'd love to do it. I have done it in the past and we maybe in the future. But the more you focus on something, the better you get at it. One of my professors told me, you know, he said, the key to life is if you can find a thing that you love doing and someone will pay you for it, then you do more of it and you get better at it. And then they pay you more and then you can, and it's this nice circle, right? So I'm kind of careful to stay, <laughs> what do I know and what can I really do? And, and it's that, you know, digital is great because when you get it right, it scales. You know, if you build a restaurant, the cost for one more table is the same as the cost for the first table. But if you build a software, the cost for the second is zero. So that's why it scales, right? You build one and then you can sell. That's one from a business perspective, but then you also have very clear ESG guidelines. And that is something that venture capital is notoriously very strong on compared to other asset classes. You don't find many VCs that say tobacco, yeah, I fucking love that. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas if you go to a private equity, the big banks that you know and all that, you'll typically find that they've got that in their portfolio as well. But most VCs are very driven by ideology. That's true. And founders, you know, entrepreneurs today, they want to change the world and improve the world. So it lines up very nicely. You want to improve the world? Me too. <laughs> Let's do a deal, you know. I, I focus on Europe, so I don't invest in the US. I don't invest in Asia. We have things that go there, which is funny because I grew up in America, so I, you know, I get the question a lot, like, why are you not there? I'm here because I think the potential here is bigger. And I think by focusing here, we can achieve more than if we would delude ourselves with those places. And it's tempting to say, well, the U.S. is where venture capital was created and it's really strong, which is true, but it's very competitive and overfunded. Whereas here, less competitive, underfunded, big opportunity.
So I really, again, stay in my area and try to just be better and smarter at that. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, everyone, for being here. I hope you guys enjoyed. And thank you, everyone listening as well. Thank you, David. Thank you, Andreas. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.